And all God's people said, Amen. It's hard to wrap our minds around what transpired those last few seconds on the cross, isn't it? What was Jesus' final thoughts as he committed himself into the care of the Father? One of those great questions we'll get to ask when we get there, amen? i got some things I want to talk to Jesus about. This morning, if you turn your Bibles to Paul's second letter, to his protege, his young understudy, this one to whom he would entrust the ministry, Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 1, we'll focus in on just the first seven verses this morning. Before we get there, I really want to take some time in introduction to this particular book because it is Paul's last written words. If you've ever wondered which book he wrote last, this is it. It's 2 Timothy. This is the one that he penned shortly before his death. And so as such, it is very different than all of the rest of the books, the letters that we have in our Bibles that were written by the Apostle Paul. It's very personal. It's emotional. It contains within it a message to someone that he deeply loves and longs to see again. Uh, It is a book of tremendous encouragement. And we find Paul the encourager here in this particular book, doing what I think would be very difficult for most of us. And I want to focus in on that a little bit this morning. Because I believe that many of you, many of us, our our nation, our world, going through times of adversity and difficulty, things that are going on in our lives that we really don't have specific answers for, things that are to a large degree unfair, they're unwarranted, They've come into your life maybe by no fault of your own at all. You're simply enduring and going through something. Maybe some of you this morning are literally suffering for the cause of the gospel. You may be in the situation that you're in because you love the Lord, because you made a career move that that puts you in conflict with the world. Maybe you've forsaken things that once, as Paul said, were gained to me, but I now count those things as lost, that I might gain the excellency of that high calling that I have in Christ Jesus. You've laid things down. You're in a place in your life to where you're actually going through things because you love the Lord. If that's you, this is your book. This is your book. Because Paul's going to write a heartfelt letter from a place of great difficulty. And I pray that it ministers to us and that we're strengthened and encouraged. I love the words of James, for this life is but a vapor. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. As as I've gotten older and watched my children grow, and I, I, I can scarcely believe the rapid pace with which life advances. As I sit there and talk to people that have walked with the Lord for a long time, it is like a blink, a blip on the radar screen. It seems as though only yesterday, uh, Connie and I were looking back and uh, 
We have been married for 35 years, and and it just seems like it has transpired that fast. It is what we do for the Lord that lasts, and it's what we do for the Lord that counts. And it is those things that ultimately bring a smile to the face of our Father God in heaven, to our Savior Jesus, the the joy of the Holy Spirit, that really are going to matter at the end of days. And I pray that we see that through this marvelous letter. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we have celebrated this morning your sacrifice on Calvary's cross, Lord, in response to what your word plainly declared, for without the shedding of blood, there was no remission, there is no remission of sin without blood. And so you shed your blood for us, and we are eternally grateful. In a very literal sense, we're eternally grateful. For without it, we would not have eternal life. But with it, we have eternal life, and it is an abundant life. It is to be a joy-filled life, even in the face of adversity. And so, God, we ask this morning as we study your word, that you'd make us alive to receive it, that you'd give us joy. Lord, I pray for those this morning that have come and they're weighted down with burdens and cares and their uncertainties of life, the things that have overwhelmed them, overcome them. God, we pray for your Spirit to inhabit our minds and our hearts and restore our joy to you. Lord, help us to receive with gladness the engrafted word that we might be strengthened with it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So as Paul begins to write this, if you were with us in our study in the book of Acts, and of course as we ended there in Acts chapter 28, Paul had already been in prison one time. But that imprisonment that we saw there was an imprisonment that was much like a house arrest. It was not really a prison. He was simply in a house under the guard of a Roman centurion. Some Roman soldiers took care of him, but he could literally come and go. He could receive letters. He he had an opportunity to minister to people. That particular imprisonment uh, was a time of ease as far as imprisonment goes. This is not the case now. He is imprisoned under the Roman Emperor Nero. This is a time of persecution of the church. He's now in the Mamertine prison. And in that Mamertine prison, most people failed to live through that experience itself. Often that was sufficient to kill people. Paul is actually awaiting his own death. He's been sentenced to death. This dank, disgusting dungeon that he's in. Uh, If you were to go to Rome and you see the location of the Roman Forum there on the hilltop, uh, you find the Temple of Julius Caesar and adjacent to it the Temple of Zeus, uh, the Office of Records where the Roman historian Tactus wrote of this particular time, which we, by the way, have manuscript evidence of his writings, and he wrote very distinctly and very Uh, correctly about that period of history, and so we have historical record of these times. Paul is written of himself, and it is from his writings that we understand that Paul was beheaded. Uh, Paul is awaiting that. That's where he's sitting. Uh, 
He's there uh, where everything in Rome happened. If there was a decision made, it was made in the forum. He is 600 feet, roughly, from the Roman forum, where the Roman Senate would meet, where the Caesar would meet with the Roman Senate. It was as if something were happening, and if you could imagine, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., it would be the equivalent of having, in essence, uh, a prison located where the Supreme Court now sits, across the courtyard that holds the motorcades for the various officers uh, in both the House and Senate as they meet together. It was that close. Paul was being imprisoned, in essence, in, in the heart of the Roman world, which at the time was the ruling, it was the ruling empire of the entire world and would go on from there to even become a, a greater influence in spite uh, of some of the rulers that they had. It was there in that square, probably within earshot of Paul, that the Roman triumph parades were held as a Roman general would go out and conquer lands in the name of Rome and he would come back with the prisoners of war and the spoils of war uh, with their armies. They would mount, march through that plaza. It was a place of grand spectacle. It was such a dichotomy of a, of a place for Paul to be. On one hand, a man falsely accused awaiting death. On the other hand, these joyous, triumphant parades of the glories of Rome. That's where Paul is. He doubtless could hear what was going on, and probably to a large degree even from his prison cell. Uh, had an opportunity to minister to those who were keeping him prisoner. I've often wondered, what would Paul be thinking about at this stage of his life? And, and I question you, I question us, I question myself. What do we think about? Here Paul is, now that he's served the Lord since his conversion, there in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, he's now served the Lord for the better part of 35 years. He's made three missionary journeys that encompass tens of thousands of miles of travel, ultimately. He's planted churches all over Asia Minor. Uh, he has both friend and foe. He's already appealed to Caesar. What was he thinking about? Uh, I'm sure he was thinking about some of the churches he planted. Undoubtedly, and we're going to find from this particular letter, he was certainly thinking about Timothy. What would you be thinking about if you were awaiting your death? We can personalize this family because all of us get out on the end of life spectrum. What will be your thoughts when you get down to those final days, weeks, months, maybe years? Maybe you've been diagnosed with a life-threatening disease. Maybe you've reached that time of life to where it's inevitable that we, we have been guaranteed uh, just a, a scant few years on this planet and then gl the glories of heaven. What would you be thinking about? What would you write about there in those last moments, really, of life? What would be your concern? As I shared on Wednesday night a, a couple of weeks ago, do you really possess the joy of the Lord? Is, is your focus Jesus first? Is it others second? And is it yourself last? Because it's very obvious that's exactly how Paul felt. We, we don't find him recording for pitiful me. This is unfair, God. After all, I've given you 35 years of my life 
I have suffered greatly. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been hucked out of a city and over a wall and left for dead. What would you say? How would you act? By the time he's imprisoned here in this particular journey, I'm sure he was reflecting on his ministry. And I'm sure he was reflecting on those faithful co-workers. Those people that had had an influence in his life and he in theirs. I've already begun that reflective part of, of my time in ministry. And as I sit and look back now, just the hundreds and, and literally thousands of people that God has put me in contact with in my time in ministry, the, the thousands of Bible college students that I've had an opportunity to share the Word of God with. And I think back, and what are they doing, and where are they going, and how is God using them? And I'm blessed to be in uh, a position to where I see some of them come back, and they're serving the Lord Jesus, you know, children that were dedicated to the Lord early in my ministry. What, what a joy that is. I, I think on Pastor Chuck right now. He is in this place. They're at the, at the very uh, end of his time here on this earth. I don't know how long he has. I doubt it's long. Maybe if the Lord tarries, a, a God might give him another decade. But what do we think about? What are we doing with that time? I believe also that he probably focused in, as we saw in the book of Acts, on those who abandoned the faith, abandoned him, Hymenaeus, Alexander, Demas, these guys that are mentioned uh, in the book of Acts, that we look back on their lives and we go, how did they hear the message that everyone else heard, and yet they went the other way? Do you ever think about those people in your life that you've been faithful to share with, and yet they're not walking with Jesus? Some of the most hurtful things that, that I ponder on occasion are those people that I know I shared the truth with them and they chose not to believe it and they walked away. For some of us, that's our family. Some of us, it's our friends. Some of us, it's our parents. What do you think about? What, what, what concerns you when you rise up in the morning? I guarantee you that he experienced great loneliness. I, I absolutely believe, and we see that a little bit in this letter, that, that there is some sadness to him. And that's upon occasion a good thing. We're going to find out he desperately wants to see Timothy. We're going to find out he's actually cold. He's going to request his cloak. You know, we think of Italy and we think of warm and Mediterranean, but it gets freezing cold there when the wind blows down out of the Dolomites and it gets intensely cold in the winter. Bone-chilling cold. What do we do when we get cold? What do we do when things aren't going quite the way that we want them to go? Where do your emotions run? I, I wonder, you know, how much strength he drew from those whom he had put into ministry, invested in. The, the terrible T's, Timothy, Titus, and Tychius, these guys that went out because of Paul's investment in their life. Are you currently investing in the lives of the next generation? Are you currently investing in the lives of the next generation? 
You know, we believe, and I believe, that the Lord could return at any moment. I believe the days are short. I believe we're out on the end of the timeline. Uh, I believe with all my heart there are a handful of things that could happen in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and the dead in Christ could rise, and we who are alive and remain would meet him in the air. I believe that with all my heart. But I also believe in a sovereign God who has deep and longing care for the lost, and there are billions of them on this planet. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Lord tarried a while longer. Are you investing in the lives of the next generation? As parents, it's your chief job. It is task number one for you to invest in the lives of your own kids. And it moves out from there. I was with a group of men last night, and we were talking about mentoring and raising the next generation up. And what are we doing to to see to it that when God takes us home, that there's a faithful remnant left to carry on? That it doesn't die with us, that this church wouldn't disappear if I died. That the ministries that we're engaged in, the things that we do, would continue on because God is not done. That was Paul's concern in this letter. He wasn't thinking about himself. And it doesn't mean that we're not concerned with the things of the day. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. And I, and I don't want anyone to feel defeated or feel bad that, that you know, you're going on vacation next week. I think that that's wonderful, and to some degree, I will tell you this, Scripture actually speaks of, and I'm going to cover this in two Wednesdays on Wednesday night, I think there's a place for the refreshment of the body of Christ. But are we looking at the future and saying, what am I doing to invest in it? Kingdom things. As Paul was waiting in his cell for martyrdom, uh, he was alone at times with his feelings. Anybody ever feel alone with your feelings? It's like nobody cares and nobody's thinking of me. And I, I don't know, you know, I've invested and I don't know why people don't invest back in me. I think if we're honest, most of us feel like that at times. Most of us go through times to where we wonder, you know, what was the motivation? And see, if you have the motivation correct, then those feelings are going to be balanced by a work of the Spirit. Because you're going to realize you never were in it for you in the first place. You were in it for others. And again, the easy way to see this is in the lives of our own families. So much of what family life is is sacrificial, amen? And it doesn't matter whether that's as parents or as children or grandparents or aunts or uncles. So much of that is sacrificial. You know, you look back on all the things that you've done, you know, probably all those cards that you've sent out where you've encouraged and, you know, sent money off to the aunts, uncles, nieces, and cousins' graduations, and you're trying to encourage, and, you know, the next time you see them, they don't even remember your name. It isn't why we do those things. We're investing in the future. Paul's final words here are really bundled up in a short letter to his true son in the faith. I love that. Verse 2, his true son in the faith. Are you leaving a family of faith behind? 
Are you leaving a family of faith behind? As I look around the sanctuary this morning, there are many of you who are leaving a family of faith behind. I can say yes and amen and swell with joy and pride in the right sense that yes, that's happening in this body. But for some of you, I would ask, are you leaving a family of faith behind? Is your relationship with Jesus Christ so strong that it overrides everything else that you are and it is what you are known for? Are you known first as a man of God or a woman of God? Is that the overriding thing about your life? These questions pop up in this letter. This letter happens to be uh, personal and it sometimes it's somber. And I think there's a place for that. I don't want to spend a great deal of time with us wallowing in the difficulties of that somberness, but I do believe there's a place for somberness in the body of Christ. Just some quiet reflection on those things that really matter, and and am I doing what God's asked me to do? It seems like the last year, I can tell you for me, has, has been a little bit that way. It's like, Lord... Now, where I am in my life, am I, am I in the center of your will? Am I doing what you've asked me to do? And am I doing it well? It's okay to have some somber reflection from time to time. And it's okay to be dissatisfied with your answer to yourself every once in a while as well. Not in defeat, but in humble acknowledgement that maybe we can do better. Amen? Because there are times when we really need to recognize, you know what, Lord, I could do better at that. I, I want to leave a heritage of faith. I I want those things that you want to flow from my life. Interesting that unlike almost all the rest of Paul's writings, you're going to find no complex refutations of apostasy. There's going to be no doctrinal treatises in this particular book. There's some simple instructions to some church leaders. But it's just a personal letter. And I pray that we're, we're able to be ministered to it that way. It's as if Paul were saying to Timothy... My son in the faith, I'm leaving. I believe I've done all I can to train you up, but I'm going to be gone pretty shortly. And I want you to stay faithful and stand strong and keep on keeping on. And I I believe the hidden message here is there'll be a reunion in heaven. You, You keep fighting the fight. You keep doing what you know to be correct and true. And in light of that, as as we ponder this, as we look over these words, think about what you would say. And I know this is kind of, you know, it's kind of macabre. But let's just say you have cancer. Let's just say I have cancer. And I've got a couple of weeks to live. And I'm writing to people that I really... Maybe I'm writing a letter to my sons. Dad's not going to be with you much longer. I don't have a lot of time left. God's numbered my days. It's pretty evident that it's going to be short. What would you write? What would you want them to hold in their hands 2,000 years later? What would you want people to know as your final words? What encouragement would you offer to those that you're leaving behind?
That's why this book is such an amazing encouragement. At this time, Emperor Nero is the fifth Roman emperor. He begins his reign. He began to reign in Rome at age 16 in AD 54. He would actually die at the age of 30 by his own hand, falling on his own sword. That's a good thing he killed himself because he was about to be killed. The, Greek, or the Roman historian Tacticus wrote this. He said, speaking of the persecution of the Christians, when we talk about the church being persecuted, Nero was the one who really put that to light. He was the most wicked, as far as the Christians were concerned, uh, probably the most wicked of all of the Roman uh, Caesars, emperors. Writing of the Christians, he said their death was made a matter of sport. They were covered in wild beast skins and torn to pieces by dogs. They were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as torches at night. These are the writings of a Roman historian of the day. Nero had offered his gardens for spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mingling the crowd in guise of charioteer mounted on his chariot. And hence, there arose a feeling of pity because they felt they were being sacrificed not for the common good, but for the savagery of one man. That's the guy that's imprisoned Paul. He's awaiting death. The terror uh, that was put upon the Christians at that time, Paul uh, was the recipient of it. And it's believed that just a few months after writing this letter Timothy to Timothy, Timothy likely was being, uh, in essence, uh, replaced temporarily um, by Tychius on his way to Rome and on the Ostian Way just outside of Rome that Paul was, in fact, beheaded. And so Paul, writing this letter, begins to speak to us, to speak to me, to speak to you to kind of give us some encouragement, uh, if you will. Encouragement that we all need to hear, and he's going to give us really four uh, definite things here in the first seven verses. And I find it utterly amazing that in light of what I just told you, that Paul's thinking about others. Does that boggle your mind? I mean, how, how in that time... Did he sit there in this dank, musty, horrible dungeon, uh, undoubtedly hearing sounds and smelling smells that would drive any of us near to insanity? How is it that he took time to to pin uh, this letter? Luke is with him. Timothy's on his way, but he's largely alone. And yet his concern is not himself. His concern absolutely is others. And he possesses just an amazing, courageous enthusiasm that I pray catches fire in us. In spite of our circumstances, in spite of the crazy, insane, uh, sometimes very difficult, horrific things that we might go through, that we would be so focused on eternity. And that doesn't mean that we become no earthly good in the here and now, but we are so concerned with the eternal that the temporal things that we go through pale in comparison 
that we occupy our mind and our hearts with things that ultimately we can do something about. You know, if I get cancer, there's really not much I can do. You know, I can pray, God might heal me. But you know what, I can pray for my nephew who's going through a very, very tough time right now. I absolutely can be concerned for those that are hurting right now and do something about it with the resources that God's given me. I have an opportunity to make even the most difficult time of my life count for something. And that's what Paul does. And so verse 1 here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, just the first seven verses, and it says there, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and would you note, by the will of God. I've shared with you before, I want to reiterate to you, ministry is a calling. It's not a profession. Uh, It is not something you can simply train for. It's not a career path. Is a calling. He, he was called by the will of God. I am what I am, he has already said, by the will of God. The things that I do, I do for him. That life that I live, I live in him. It is something that we have been called to. It's not something we're simply prepared for. And, and as such, it goes deeper than just your mental knowledge and understanding. That's why people who go to seminary very often don't make good pastors. They have a whole bunch of head knowledge. They've crammed their heads full of even scripture at times. But there's no calling upon their life. It isn't the will of God. They've simply embarked on what they believe is a career move to a large degree. If you are not prepared to live your life sacrificially and humbly for the Lord then you will not succeed at ministry. By the will of God, and according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, he says the only only way that I can do this, and the only reason that I do it, is because Jesus Christ died for me. Amen. The only reason I do what I do, and the only way I can do what I do, is because Jesus Christ died for me. And, And it would be disingenuous of us to take credit for what the Lord did and is doing. And so Paul gives credit here in verse 1 to Timothy. Notice this, a beloved son. Not anything else but a beloved son. And I love the fact that in this particular letter, that's how he views Timothy. Notice what he doesn't say. And I always love what's missing in Scripture. You know, the one whom I'm invested in and have trained up, and he's going to make some intimations to those things. But our relationships are based on, at the very core, a love relationship. That's that's what they should be, because he first loved us. Amen? So those things that we do and those people we invest in, we do so for one reason and one reason alone, We love the Lord. We love them. It isn't what I can get out of it. It isn't, you know, I hope in my old age, you know, notice he doesn't ask, well, Timothy, you know, I invested in you, so why don't you invest in me? I'm longing to see you, but, you know, you could really stand to pay me back now for all the time I spent with you. Remember what a jerk you were when I first met you? No, I just love you as a son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord 
Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ our Lord or Christ Jesus our Lord, depending on what translation you have. The fact of the matter is he uses all three of those names. His mission is the Messiah, Christus. His name, Yahushua, God of salvation and Lord, Master. Puts them all together. He says, the only reason that, that I'm effective in any of these things is because Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I love the fact that he puts mercy in there. You know, he never uses that when writing to the church. He only uses mercy when he writes to pastors. It's because he knows pastors need mercy. Lots and lots and lots and lots of mercy. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you. Notice where his focus is. It's outward. It's not inward. I remember in my prayers, night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, for I'm persuaded it is in you also. You ever wondered if it's worth it to work on a godly heritage? There's three generations right there. It was in grandma, it was in mom, it's in the son. If you do nothing else while you're on this earth, pass along a heritage in Christ to your kids. If you work a dead-end job, pass on a godly heritage to your kids. If you amount to not a whole lot on the grand social scheme of things, pass along a godly heritage to your kids, to your grandkids, to your aunts, to your uncles, to your nieces, to your extended family, to those whom you know and have contact with. It's the only thing that you're going to get to leave on this earth that's going to bear eternal fruit. Invest in kingdom things. And I am persuaded it's in you also, and therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He says, I know what manner of man you are. I, I know what God's done in your life. You know, one of the great joys of being a pastor is to kind of step back away and you, you invest, you just do what God's called you to do, and you spend your time in those things that uh, are kingdom-oriented, and then you step back away from it and you go, I knew that God's hand was upon you. I've had so many opportunities to look in the lives of people and just say, you know what, I know God's going to do something amazing with you. His hands are on you. Let me pray for you. Uh, I'm stunned. That's one of the greatest blessings of being at the camp is to see these, uh, these were, in some cases, infants. They're, you know, they were two, three, four years old the first time I saw them. And to see them standing at the pulpit teaching the Word of God seeing kids' lives transformed and saved. Now, we've had a couple of situations this last couple of weeks where it just, I mean, it is just, it's the, it, it is staggeringly wonderful to see the, the lives of people that have been transformed and changed just through the simple teaching of God's Word. And all of a sudden, God's using them. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
What a, what a beautiful few words that is. You see, Paul could have had a spirit of fear. He's awaiting death. He could have been overrun with emotion. He, he could have, and, and it isn't that he's being unrealistic. It's not that he's got ostrich syndrome here. You know, well, I don't know. Maybe God's going to just rescue me. I, I don't think that was the case. I think he's being very blunt and very honest. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. You know, when it gets down to be your time, it's your time. Like I shared with you two trips ago when I was down in Brazil and our plane crash landed. You know, the weird thing is there really wasn't any fear involved in it. It was kind of like, well, God, you're going to have to take care of the family because if this goes the way it looks like it's going to go, I'm going to be dead here shortly. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. And if you've ever been with somebody near the end of their life who loves the Lord Jesus, it's not fear. But without him, it's 100% fear. It's terrifying. It's agonizing. It's horrific, and it's horrible. But with Jesus, that appointed time has come. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. Notice these three things. But of power, power, not weakness, power. Paul, in that Roman dank dungeon, was more powerful than Nero sitting on his throne. Paul, in that dungeon, was more powerful than Caesar on his throne. Because the same power that flung the stars into space was in Paul. You can have all the glory and all the power this world has to offer, and at the end of your days, you are a zero. You will spend eternity in hell. You will amount to nothing on an eternal scale. But the flip side is also true. You can have absolutely nothing while you're on this earth and receive the glories of God in heaven. So who's the true hero? It's Paul. The one with nothing. And of love. (laughs) What an amazing thing. That Paul's heart is love. He's not screaming at the Roman guards. He's not, I can't believe you guys arrested me falsely. I want an attorney. You know, I've been in here before. I, I, we don't know for sure, but I can pretty much guarantee you that everybody that went by, they, they probably walked around his cell. It's like, don't go over there, I'll share Jesus with you. He can hardly even stand up, but he's, just, he's got this Jesus fixation. And of love. And notice the last one, a sound mind. Paul wasn't freaked out. He didn't call up the guards and go, man, I need some Prozac. Can you bring me a few beers? He was of a sound mind. God was protecting his mind. God controlled those thoughts and emotions. Sometimes, and I'm going to be speaking on this very shortly on Wednesday night as well, dealing with depression and the Christian. Paul had every reason in the world to be depressed. But we don't find that in this letter. 
He wasn't depressed. He was of a sound mind. He knew that he had finished the race. He knew that he had fought the fight. He, he knew that he had run well, and he was about to cross the finish line. He was of a sound mind. He wasn't looking with regret. He wasn't dredging up the past in a negative sense. He was reminded of the future and the glory of God. It gives you a sound mind. You may have nothing while you're on this earth, but your future in Christ Jesus is secure. It gives you a sound mind. And it doesn't give you a false sense of security either. It is a reality that heaven awaits. That's why he was so secure in it. As we wrap this up this morning, just four things. Notice that Paul's overcome with love. When you're freely pouring into the lives of others, that bears fruit in your life. You know, when you sell people things, those of you that are in business, you know this. One of the great fears of business enterprises is that whatever product you put out or whatever thing you sell, that it's going to last sufficiently long that you don't get sued. You know, that it's going to be okay, that none of your employees did anything wrong, and that's one of the great difficulties of being in business. Ministry is not a business. We freely give love, and we know what love returns. I don't have to worry about the quality of the things that are going to return to me because I'm giving out the one substance that God's given me freely. I can share it with other people at no cost. And it bears fruit in my life. When you pour into others, it pours back to you. There's no explanation for it in a worldly sense. In a business world, we we set up our little networks and we do all of our things. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, by the way. But we, we sit there and we're hoping and trusting that these things will, you know, they'll bear some type of a, of a positive impact in our, our little world that we focus in. Love is one of those things you can just keep giving it because it has an endless supply. You'll never run out of it. And the more of it you give, the more likely you are to get some of it back. So when you pour it out, you're actually benefiting your own selves as you're benefiting others. It's one thing that you can do that is simultaneously other-centered and also bears a dividend in your own life. Because you're not ever going to find this, oh, I can't believe you loved on me, you rotten scumbag. <laughs> I was being mean to you and you loved on me and I wanted you to be mean to you you know, because I just want to suffer. Now. Paul poured out love even in a difficult situation. Second thing that we see here as we wrap this up is Paul's prayer life. Paul's prayers. He couldn't do anything else but pray. And that effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man availed much. You know, sometimes you ever feel kind of guilty like telling somebody, well, I'll pray for you. You know, you want to do something for them or maybe you want to have some word of knowledge for them or some wisdom for them or maybe give them something that will help their situation. You realize that actually the best thing that you can do is pray. If it is an earnest prayer for the will of God to be accomplished in that person's life and you're praying specifically for that situation that that person is embroiled in, you are doing the best thing that you can do for them. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. When people tell me they're praying for me, I, I take that to the bank. 
That's a Jesus thing. It's like you're, you're praying, praise God, because I need it badly. You know, you might hand me something that maybe will make my life good today, but if you're praying for me, that's, that's eternally focused. It's not just going to fix my today. It'll fix my tomorrow and my hereafter. It assures the greatest glory of God here and now and ultimately for those things that God's going to do with us all later. Paul's praying wasn't routine, it wasn't flippant, it wasn't hollow, it wasn't an afterthought. It was the very focus of what he wanted to to offer to Timothy. I can't do anything else. I'm here in this cell. I've got lots of time on my hands, so I'm going to invest it in your life through prayer. Please do that. That is an act of love. And you know what? Prayer is sacrificial. Very often as we're praying, you have to sacrifice in order to pray. We've all got other things to do, amen? You ever noticed how immediately when you get up, the God of this age fills your head with, i got to do this, 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 this. And you run down your to-do list, and you, you pull out a bunch of stuff. You know, Sometimes I just I leave the lights off, and I just go sit on the couch. I, I just go, Lord, I'm so prone to distraction. I just need to, to pray. And it's amazing to me how many times people are brought up in my mind, all of a sudden those things I didn't even know that I knew, I now know. And it doesn't take forever. The God that orders the universe can fill your head with an awful lot of very productive things in a relatively short period of time, but we need to invest in loving prayer for those that we are concerned for, for our world. I want you to see a third thing here, and that's Paul's uh, confidence, his spoken confidence, his, his implied confidence in Timothy. H- have you shared your confidence with someone in them? Have you encouraged them? You know, we live in a world that is so prone to the negative. It's one of the things I hate about media. It's like they dredge up every bad, vile, disgusting thing about everyone. And let's just be honest. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have some baggage somewhere. Okay? There's not one of us, myself included. If, if that's how we function in this life, we are going to be, as Paul said, most miserable of all people. We're, we're going to be miserable. Have you encouraged someone today? Have you encouraged someone in your family? Have you been kindly encouraging in, in those conversations? When I call to remembrance, verse 5 says, your genuine faith that's in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded it's in you also. Timothy, you go for it because I know you can do it. What an encouragement that is to other people. Husbands, do you remind your wives of how blessed you are for all the things that they do for you every day that are done largely unseen. Wives, same thing for your husbands as you're, they're going off to work, that job that they really would like to find something else to do to make money for the family, but that's it. Are you thanking them for their steadfastness in Christ? Are you just simply issuing compliments in that, in that moment of daily life that tells that person, I know and I believe in you. I'm thankful for you. Those words go a long ways, do they not? Now, who doesn't like to be encouraged and comforted and, and 
brought to that throne of grace and said, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm just thankful I know you. One of the things that I've learned in my travels internationally, I may not be able to solve all the problems for these individual churches when I go visit them, but you know what I can do 100% of the time? I can encourage them. 100% of the time. I, sometimes it's crying with them, sometimes it's praying with them, sometimes it's crying and praying with them, sometimes it's just doing simple things, sometimes it is just simply taking them out to lunch, getting them away from a daily grind. Be an encourager, please, in Jesus' name. And, and husbands and wives, if you have children, encourage your kids. This world is rough. It is hard. It is harsh. And they are under attack every day. They don't need your condemnation. They need your encouragement. They, they don't need to have all their faults distributed before them. They need your encouragement. They, they need you to speak words of comfort to them. They need to know that you believe in them. Paul had watched Timothy's life. During the time they were together, and he was certain that God was going to use them. Speak with that certainty into other people's lives. And then finally he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. He said, All these things that I'm experiencing here in this cell, they're kept under control by the things that God's done in my life. I feel the power of God. I feel the love of God. And I feel the consequent lack of fear because Scripture is filled with admonitions for us to fear not. Amen? Jesus said, Fear not, for I have overcome the world. And because He overcame the world, we overcome the world. We have an obligation, I believe, as the body of Christ to be an encouragement one to another within our own homes, within our communities. And I believe if we would spend more time encouraging each other, as Paul does here to Timothy, under the worst of circumstances, that we would reap fruit that is eternal. That we would bring out the very best in people. You know, I can tell you this, because I have fortunately buried deep within me. There's a part of me that, that's very analytical and at times critical. But I can tell you something about that analysis and about those, those critical thoughts that I used to have all the time. I've never really seen them bear much fruit in people's life. You know, sharing what ails them rarely actually fixes the problem. But when you couple that with, I believe in you. I believe that God wants to change that in your life. And you show them how, and you offer to go with them in that difficulty. And you say to them, you know what, you're not alone. We're in this together. And I want to invest in your life, and I want your life to count for things that would glorify the Lord. When you do that, you will have an effect in people's lives. It may not be instantaneous. Anybody in here that's a parent, you know that some of the investments that you've made in your children's life have yet to bear fruit. Amen? You still need the rake for their room and 
You know, you you look at some of those things. I I know you were not raised by wildebeests, and I'm sure at some point in time you'll actually be able to find your shoes. But but we don't cast out our children. Our our parents did not do that to us. We need to be encouragers. Paul was an encourager. May we be encouraging one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, as we have studied your word this morning, we thank you that you bring so many people into our lives to encourage us. Lord, I thank you for my wife. Lord, I thank you for my children. Thank you for this church. Lord, for those men in my life, Lord, I I pray for Pastor Steve this morning in South Bay that you would just bless him. Lord, each of us right now could be thinking of people who have invested in us, taken time to encourage us, taken time to put their hand upon our shoulder and say it's going to be okay. Father, we thank you for those with the gift of encouragement. And we pray for each of us that you would raise up that gift within us, God, help us to be encouragers. Help us to love each other with an undying love. Father, we pray that you would, in fact, give us that spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. God, help us to think rightly on the things that you're doing in this world. Help us to be unashamed of the gospel. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. Lord, we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Let's just stand. Let's sing him a praise song. Amen. The splendor of